Revelation 19, 6 through 10. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, because the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. And it was granted to her to be dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And he says to me, Write, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And he says to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he says to me, Don't. I am your fellow slave, and among your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we uh, dig into it, uh, this morning, that uh, our hearts would continue to worship, that you would draw our hearts to you and sanctify us by your word, which is truth. We love it, and we bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you, and um, I'll just give a little review of where we've uh, been. In my last message, I showed that the church of Jesus Christ must learn to rejoice over the God who really is. Not a God of our imaginations, but the God as he reveals himself in the word. Not just the God of love and of grace, but also the God of wrath and of judgment. And when we are able to rejoice in God's historical and eternal judgments, it changes us. Uh, we begin to hate our sin more. We begin to fear God and tremble at his word much more. And we looked at numerous other benefits that come when we are no longer embarrassed by what the Scripture describes about our God of wrath and judgment. But starting in verse 6, we find the church rejoicing in something positive. They are rejoicing that the wedding celebration for Jesus and his church has finally arrived. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory because the wedding of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. Now, when you think about it, start meditating upon that. That is an incredibly wonderful statement of the closeness that the church can have to Jesus. It's similar to the a totally different metaphor of the body where Jesus is the head, the church is the body. But there is this closeness that we can have. And when we meditate on what is redemption accomplished, it truly is wonderful. Commentators uh, point out that it showcases the spiritual union between Christ and his church, the intimacy that the church can have with Christ, and the deep love that Christ has for the church. Now, before I get into that, though, I've got to settle a controversy, and that is the timing of this wedding. Uh, because it may not be intuitively obvious to you that this timing should come exactly where it comes. Some people think that the wedding can't take place till the end of all time, till the bride is filled, you know, with all of the elect. And there's a certain logic to uh, that thought. And yet they have a hard time throwing these verses off into the future to the end of time because there's nothing in the context before or in the context afterwards that would indicate this is the last day of history. And so they struggle over that. There are others who say, well, the wedding of Christ and the church occurs at Pentecost when the Spirit unites us, fills our hearts, draws our hearts close to 
the Lord. And there's a certain logic to that as well. But that too violates the immediate context that is in here. There are some scriptures that would seem to point to the fact that God was already married to the church in the Old Testament. In fact, there are some scriptures that seem to indicate God was married to the church before time began, before we were even created. And so there's a lot of confusion. What, what is going on in these passages? And as you know, in terms of hermeneutics, God's principles for uh, interpreting his word, we need to let this passage itself dictate where it should go before we try to reconcile it because I think there is a lot that we can learn once we understand the, the tension between these different scriptures and if we try to merge this or force it to mean something that the context doesn't allow it to mean we're not going to apply it properly now, as we'll see even my view is going to have some tensions in it there, there is no view on eschatology that can escape these uh, tensions but I think by the end of it, uh, hopefully, you will understand it a bit better. Well, let me start by stating the obvious. Verses six through ten, uh, excuse me, verses six through ten, happen immediately after verses one through five, and uh, verses one through five happen immediately after chapter eighteen, and it all takes place in AD seventy. Let me just list a few reasons. First of all, I assume, and I have to because of time, that you have already heard uh, my sermons on chapter 18, verse 1, through chapter 9, 19, verse 5. We saw that those events were very clearly rooted in AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, when the international banking system uh, came under collapse. So that's the context. But these verses can't occur too many years after that, because verses 17 through 18 make clear that the land is strewn with bodies that had died in the previous judgment. Well, you know, they're not going to be around for, you know, many, many decades, so it has to occur shortly after the judgment occurred. Now, I know that's kind of a, a gross backdrop <laughs> for this wedding, but hey, I didn't put it there. God's the one who put this backdrop uh, to the wedding, and he had a purpose for it, but it all happened in AD 70. So the immediate context shows these events are smack dab in the middle of the Seven Year War. Now if you turn with me over to Matthew 22, uh, this dating is confirmed by the other passage that deals with the beginning of this wedding uh, festival, this uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. Now there are other passages that do reference the marriage supper of the Lamb, but they are referring to the end of that supper when the groom comes back from the supper. And we're going to distinguish that in a little bit. But let me read Matthew 22, and I think you'll see that we're going to have exactly the same order of events that we have in Revelation chapter 19. Matthew 22, beginning to read at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So God's arranging this marriage for Jesus. There's nothing wrong with arranged marriages. Some people balk at that, but uh, there have been many, many happy, probably more happy marriages that have been arranged marriages than those that are not, so long as the father really is a godly uh, person. 
Uh, God gives other ways of getting married as well. There's a lot of flexibility within the universal principles of courtship and marriage. But arranged marriages, that's imitating God the Father. Well, in this passage, the wedding has not happened yet. Verse 3, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So this is a reference to the fact that Israel refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And even though Jesus continued to be gracious, continued to invite them through evangelism to come to this marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, they ended up even killing those prophets and those apostles and those other servants who had uh, been sent out to them. Verse 7, But when the king heard it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now that happened in AD 70, uh, the burning of the city. And look what the very next verse says. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So immediately after the burning of Jerusalem, there is a feast that is ready, and new guests keep getting invited to this feast. Now that figure of speech would not have been at all... Um, you know, puzzling to Jews because their weddings didn't last one day. It would be extremely unusual to have a one-day wedding. Usually they had feasting for, you know, a week, sometimes up to two weeks. And during those weeks, new invitees could come in. Maybe they didn't come to the first week of celebration. They might come to the second week. And so it's one of the reasons, keep that in mind, it's one of the reasons why... Uh, I believe that there is a continual being invited to the wedding from 8070 all the way through to the second coming. Uh, anyway, just on that pass, uh, verse, one commentator who ties Revelation 19 together with this passage said this, With God's unfaithful old covenant people destroyed, the time has come for Jesus to marry his new covenant bride. Verse 7, The old covenant wife has been cast out and it is time for the new covenant bride to receive her inheritance. CF Galatians 4, 21 through 31. As with many sections of Revelation, this narrative has shown up earlier in Scripture. The same storyline, the destruction of a persecuting city by fire followed by a wedding, is given by Jesus in Matthew 22. This parable is so obviously speaking about the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem that skeptics say it has to have been written after AD 70. In other words, even unbelievers recognize this has to be a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They don't buy it that it was a prophecy, but they say, yeah, who can avoid the conclusion? And um, it means that the wedding takes place in AD 70. Now, the first objection that comes to people's minds is this. How can this be reconciled with the fact that Christ already was a bridegroom, already had a bride much earlier. For example, in John 3, 28 through 30, John the Baptist says of Jesus, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in some sense, Jesus was already a bridegroom while he was on earth, and John was his friend, his groomsman, so to speak. So how do we reconcile that? Well, there are other people who acted in the capacity of this friend of the groom as well. For example, Paul did. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, which was written in AD 55, Paul says to the church, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So even at that late date, the church is still a virgin, okay, who had not yet been presented to Jesus, which means she's not yet consummated her marriage. She was betrothed to Christ, but not married. So there really is no contradiction at all with Revelation 19. Paul says that the marriage is imminent. She's betrothed right now. The marriage is imminent, but it has not yet happened. Now, in your outlines, I laid out a sequence in the life of Christ that has some bearing on this relationship to uh, the bride, Christ to the bride. At the cross, Christ legally died under the covenant of works, and we legally died with him. Our union to the covenant of works was broken by death. That alone enabled him to marry the church. Romans 7, 1 through 2 says that until death happens, a person is not freed from marriage. You, you and I were in Adam, or the death, you know, somebody worthy of the death penalty. That's where divorce would come in in the old covenant. But it was death that broke that. So you and I were in Adam, and the only way that we could be saved is if our old identity with Adam what Paul calls the old man, the old Adam, died with Jesus. That's only a legal transaction, but it legally freed us from the old covenant. And because Jesus died in place of Adam, it freed up Jesus to marry the new covenant people for the new covenant people to marry Jesus. Now the same truth is illustrated, as the commentary I just mentioned points out, it's illustrated with a totally different metaphor in Galatians chapter 4 with the two wives of Abraham. Sarah represents the elect who are part of Zion, the true bride of Christ, and Hagar represents the non-elect who are part of the earthly Jerusalem who were cast out. Now, Hagar was not the legitimate wife. It's, okay, she, she's, we're going to be pointing out, it was not lawful the way that that, that happened. Now, it's true that the symbols of Scripture can only be pressed so far, but I think that Galatians 4 imagery perfectly illustrates what's going on in Revelation chapter 19. Hagar symbolizes the false wife of chapter, Revelation 18 through 19, and Sarah represents the true wife, the, the new covenant wife of chapter 19. So the cross is where the legal trade-off happened. But Pentecost was where the true betrothal happened, at least historically. Now, obviously, in God's decrees, you know, people in the Old Testament times, they can get the benefits of the cross and other things even before they historically happen. But it was at Pentecost that the betrothal, in terms of redemptive history, actually happened. That was the time. Betrothal is when gifts are given, right? That's when the dowry is paid. That's when the bride price is paid. And there's lavish gifts that are poured out 
uh, onto the, the bride, just as Jesus poured out gifts upon his people, gave the Holy Spirit as the seal, as the pledge, so to speak. That's what betrothal is about. It's a pledge to get married. And so that's what happened at Pentecost. And from that time on, there are invitations to the feast. Now, if you look at the, the festivals, the first festival with leaven in it is Pentecost. Up until Pentecost, it was unleavened bread that was eaten. At Pentecost, it's leavened bread. Why? Because now that the leaven of sin has been done away with, the leaven of the kingdom, Christ's kingdom, comes in. And so this is characterizing, the leaven of the kingdom is characterizing the new covenant meal. After AD 70, it's tabernacles uh, that that best symbolizes uh, the New Covenant meal. But the New Covenant meal did start at Pentecost. Right after betrothal, there is feasting that happens then too. But the marriage feast uh, happens in connection with tabernacles. So that's AD 70. The Old Covenant ends. Hagar is cast out. The Old Covenant people are destroyed. Temple is ended. And the wedding happens. But since Matthew 22 continues the invitation to fill up the wedding feast hall after Jerusalem is destroyed, there are more and more people coming to this feast from AD 70 until the second coming. So um, Tabernacles stretches from AD, uh, Pentecost, you know, it goes from Pentecost to AD 70. Tabernacles goes from AD 70 to the end of history. They're all uh, symbolizing uh, some communion meal. Now at the second coming, the wedding feast will end and Jesus will return from the wedding. I want you to look at Luke chapter 12, verse 36. I think this is a key that helps you to understand something that's confused a lot of commentators. It distinguishes the wedding festival language of Matthew 22, which is what Revelation 19 is looking at, from the wedding language in Matthew 25, which is at the very end of history. And again, this has confused a lot of people, but I think Luke 12, 36 is a key to showing the difference. Now you'll notice in Revelation 19, the wedding has started. It is not finished. Okay? People are invited to the feast. So the feast is still happening. The bride is prepared for the wedding. But in Luke 12, verse 36, which is parallel to Matthew 25, it says of Jesus, when he will return from the wedding... This is not the time when he goes to the wedding. This is the time when he returns from the wedding after the wedding feast has finished. Now let me read the whole context and show that it's different than AD 70. It's the end of history. Luke 12, 35 through 40. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now that's second coming language. That is what the ten virgins are dealing with in Matthew chapter 25. It's the bridegroom coming back from the wedding after a long time of waiting. Now we live in 2018. 
think it was 2018. Uh, and uh, we're in the time when we're continuing to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the symbol on earth, but it also connects us with the true banquet that happens in heaven. Uh, we are to celebrate this till he comes. Not just till 8070, but we're to celebrate this till he comes. So we're in the time of evangelism when the wedding hall is getting filled up more and more. So again, there's no contradiction. But a second objection that could be raised is, how can this be reconciled with the fact that God has only had one bride throughout all history? I think it's incontrovertible fact that God has only had one people, one temple, one olive tree, one vineyard. So what's this about two wives? Well, I've already hinted at the answer. Hagar never was the true bride. When Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, she violated God's law. The unbelieving Israel that claimed to be God's wife never was his true bride. Okay? There always has been only one bride, one olive tree, one vineyard, one people of God. Now certainly there are branches that are broken off, and certainly there were symbols. You can't press a metaphor too far. There are symbols of divorce and the, and the, the, the killing in the Old Testament you know, of an unfaithful a bride, but we've already seen that the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation contains the elect from Adam all the way through to the end of history. And I want you to turn with me to Revelation 21 to see that that is the case. This is so important to understand because there's a lot of false heresies that flow out of this idea that there are two peoples of God. Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 2. Um, it, it shows that just as the harlot was likened to a city, the true bride is likened to a city. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also the ocean was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Well, who makes up this bride? Is it only people after the cross or after AD 70? Clearly not. Take a look down at verses 9 through 14. And one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the woman, the Lamb's bride. So he transported me in spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the splendor of God. Her radiance was similar to a most precious stone, like a crystalline jasper stone. She had a tremendous high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names inscribed, namely, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, looking from the east three gates, and from the north three gates, and from the south three gates, and from the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it's crystal clear that the elect of the Old Testament period of time are in this city. They're in this bride. Every bit as much as the elect of the New Testament are. Twelve tribes of Israel are, are there just like the apostles are. So it was not the Old Testament elect who were cast out, who were divorced, etc. They are not symbolized by Hagar. Okay, Hagar only symbolizes the non-elect unbelievers in every generation, every age. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4, because this is a, a key passage for reconciling uh, the various passages on the, uh, on the marriage of uh, Christ to the bride. Galatians 
first 11 verses of Galatians 4 says that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Very, very critical. He had to face the penalty of the covenant of works, which all of us were in, right? He had to face the penalties of the covenant of works so that he could place us into the second fulfilled covenant. Covenant of works is Hagar. Covenant of grace is, is Sarah. Christ's active passive obedience relates to both covenants. Okay, take a look at the very intriguing imagery here. Verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. By the way, at Mount Sinai there were no sacrifices, so it's law without sacrifice, law without redemption. At the temple, exactly the same tablets of the law were there, but it was under the mercy seat, under the blood of sprinkling. So anyway, this is where he's symbolically separating them. So he says, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who were not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And its conclusion in chapter 5, verse 1 is, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, the thing I want you to notice is that Ishmael was in the Old Covenant, even though Abraham was his father. And Isaac, who was Ishmael's brother, was in the New Covenant long before the New Covenant was ratified. How could he be in the new covenant before it was ratified? Well, it's by faith in the coming Savior. But still, people say, well, how can you legally be in a covenant before a covenant is even ratified? And Revelation 13.8 is a passage that helps us to sort of understand how God deals with this issue of the already, the, the not yet. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, wait a minute, I thought he was slain in AD 30. Yeah, he was, historically. But in God's decrees from the foundation of the world, it was so certain to happen that God says it's as if it did happen. He could provisionally apply the blood of Christ to saints in the Old Testament. They could be saved by looking forward to Christ. Same was true of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Historically, it had to happen after Christ's death and resurrection it had to happen at pentecost but in god's decrees it was so certain to happen that the old testament saints could at least provisionally participate receive of the holy spirit even though the holy spirit hadn't been poured out yet at pentecost same is true of the bride the old testament elect were provisionally placed in the bride even before the marriage supper of the lamb had historically happened. And by the way, the Old Testament types and shadows, that's what they are. They're pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to the new covenant. 
but the historical reality had not yet happened. Now, another reason why it's so appropriate to wait till AD 70 for the wedding feast to begin is that we've already seen this was the date in which the last of the Old Testament saints were raised from the dead. Okay, AD 70 was the end of the first resurrection harvest. What better time to incorporate the Old Testament elect in a special way with the New Testament elect than to bring them into this wedding feast at the time of their resurrection. Okay, but the wedding feast hall now is getting filled with guests in the meantime. Hebrews 12 says every time we partake of the Lord's table, we are ushered as guests into the heavenly feast with the saints in heaven and rejoicing in God's presence. So it really is a beautiful imagery. The wedding couldn't happen, though, till the old covenant was ended. Now, it is hard to get previous presuppositions out of our heads. And uh, if you're still confused and struggle with the imagery, just realize, first of all, that we shouldn't push images too far. That's all they are. They're illustrating one truth, and here's another image that illustrates another truth. There are over, well, there are almost, I think there's like 98 or something like that, metaphors of the church in the Bible. And the bride metaphor is only one. It's actually a minor. It's not a major metaphor in the Bible. There's many other metaphors that are in there, uh, even though it's a powerful metaphor. So we shouldn't think of it as a contradiction to see the church portrayed as a betrothed virgin in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and yet, the same entity being called the mother of us all in Galatians 4.26. Both are true. Now, when I look at my uh, mother, when she, a picture of my mother when she was nine years old, I say, oh yeah, that's my mom. Well, people know what I mean. She wasn't a mother at the time, right? But yeah, there's a sense of which she was my mother. And if you look at the already not yet language of the Bible in that, in that way, I think it helps. Every time a person gets converted, yes, there's a sense in which the church has birthed a new child, but in terms of redemptive history, there's an order of events that was already triggered by the symbols of the Old Testament, and it's at AD 70 that the wedding feast begins, and it's not until the end of history that it's perfected, okay? Or you could say consummated. Now, this past week, Matt Clark... Pastor Matt Clark sent me a note that uh, looks at this from a different angle. I thought it was kind of intriguing. He said, meditating upon Zion as the mother of a soul, the heavenly Zion with every one of the elect written there from before the beginning of the world, that heavenly Zion giving birth to each of the four ordained saints throughout the course of human history. That made me think of reproductive physiology of the woman. He's a medical doctor. He says, did you know that every woman is born with all of the eggs that she will have for all of her life? Finite number from the beginning once the ovaries are formed. Genetic material of each egg set and completed. Beautiful how God teaches us about the heavenly Zion via every single woman ever born. And I believe that history will be finished when the last elect person is conceived you know, or at least shortly thereafter. So using Matt Clark's imagery, all of the elect were in Mother Zion from the beginning of time. They were in her ovaries, so to speak. Is there a historical time when the formalities get started? Yes. In terms of redemptive history, it has to be after Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. 
And in this passage, Matthew 22, it clarifies that it has to be in AD 70 when the Old Covenant is definitively terminated. But because that event was so certain to happen, because of God's decrees, God allowed it to be provisionally enjoyed by His people even in Old Testament times. And even the Old Testament figures of the New Covenant marriage show exactly the same sequence. Uh, we've gone through them before. Let me just outline them again for you. When they were in Egypt, remember they painted the blood on their doorways. Passover happened at the same time that Jesus died, Nisan 14. Three days later, they crossed the Red Sea on the festival of first fruits for new life just when Jesus emerged from the grave many years later. Forty days later, Jethro has, by God's commandment, has Moses establish the officers and the members of the church. That's when the synagogue system is set up. Exactly 40 days later, uh, Jesus did exactly the same thing in Matthew 28, setting up the officers and the members of the church. Fifty days later came Pentecost when they're on Mount Sinai, and God formally betrothes Israel to himself. Jeremiah 2, uh, uh, verses 2 through 3, Ezekiel uh, 16 verse 8 speaks of Sinai as the time of betrothal. So that was 50 days later at Pentecost. Well, in the same way, 50 days later after Christ's um, death, uh, God uh, betrothes the church to himself at Pentecost, gives gifts, a dowry, an inheritance. Forty years later, after they come out of Egypt, they enter into their inheritance over the Jordan. And um, that is, uh, this wedding feast here is exactly 40 years later in AD 70. So that's how I tentatively reconcile the passages. Others say, well, it's simpler just to say that God has two brides. You know, and one became corrupt and he cast them out. I just don't know how you can reconcile that, though, with uh, the passages in Revelation that say that the Old Testament saints were all in the new covenant bride. So I, I think this is the, the correct direction to go. Now, with those controversies behind us, let me quickly go through the text. Verse 6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty. The, the bride has already become a great multitude in AD 70, innumerable. Their praise and their worship is so loud that it is deafening, like many waters, like thunders. Uh, and it is a hint at how joyful and how celebratory our weddings need to be. Even when there is carnage of war all around, we need to set that aside and focus in on the joy of this wedding. Well, the same is true when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we come to the Lord's table. We need to set aside the distractions of the week, focus in on the Lord, and learn how to rejoice even in the midst of the carnage of war that is around us. Now, they use the Old Testament name once again. Hallelujah means praise Jehovah. Uh, this is the fourth hallelujah in this chapter, and they're praising Jehovah for his reign and for his might. That's definitely praiseworthy material when we're coming into worship, but especially for this bride because he's just finished defending her. He's a mighty warrior who has avenged her against her enemies, has defended her, and has uh, rescued her. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory because the wedding of the Lamb has come 
And his wife has prepared herself. Prepared herself for what? For the wedding. Also notice that the multitude makes up the bride. That's true, but no one person in that multitude is the bride. Notice the us. Each of them is talking about Christ's wife as something objective to themselves. Likewise, verse 8 does not refer to the individuals who make up the corporate church as a bunch of little brides. Does not. He calls them saints. Likewise, in verse 9, the members of the church are guests at the marriage of the bride. They're not a bunch of many brides. They love Zion. They love the bride. They love the new Jerusalem. But each one of them does not constitute the Zion or the heavenly Jerusalem or the bride. Now, there is an institution, the bride, that can be distinguished from the individuals who make them up. Now, why is it so critically important that we understand this? Because this verse is a correction to the heresy of bridal mysticism. Uh, the heresy that makes individuals think of themselves as literal bride of Christ. Now, this heresy started with Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived from 1092 to 1153, but who wrote a lot of stuff that evangelicals are just eating up like candy right now. It's influencing a lot of people. He taught that every individual Christian, both body and soul, was a bride of Christ. He taught that Jesus was polygamous, had billions of brides, and very weirdly, he thought of himself as a female. He said his soul was female, and he tried to think of even his body as being female. So he's one of the first people who self-identified as something that he was not. The, the, the heresy of um, transgenderism is nothing new. But he said, well, how else can I be a bride of Christ unless I think of myself as a woman? And there are many other mystics through the Middle Ages who taught male Christians to think of themselves. Either some of them said, not your body, but your soul at least is a, is a female. And uh, this nonsense not only swept through the Roman Catholic Church, but in more recent years, it has been sweeping through many pietistic uh, segments of the church and, and, and the very, very frequently in the charismatic uh, movement. I've known some Reformed people even who have bought into this heresy. Now, in modern times, some of the charismatic movements make each individual actually take marriage vows to Jesus and they go under a bridal tent or sometimes under a bridal shawl and it is wrong it is blasphemy I want us to understand this is wrong you're probably going to be picking up sometime in your life literature where people advocate this kind of stuff Lee Grady in Charisma magazine described a worship service quote in which one of the musicians simulated sex while stroking a microphone and whispering sensual phrases to Jesus now that is extreme, granted, but it is much more frequent than you might realize. Some of the Roman Catholic nuns of the Middle Ages, whose writings are also being read by even Reformed people nowadays, this stuff is spreading. Some of these Roman Catholic nuns wrote stuff that sounds so erotic, it is absolute blasphemy in terms of their experience and their relationship. Uh, with Jesus. But even the milder versions of bridal mysticism are incredibly dangerous and very widespread. For example, it could be found in some of the promise keepers uh, literature. And not surprisingly, it has led to a feminizing of the clergy. If a person, if a clergyman sees himself as a female bride of Christ, well, 
what's going to happen? Eventually, he's going to lose all sense of masculinity. It's been very destructive. Podels says, the transfer of the role of bride from the community to the soul has helped bring about the pious individualism that has dissolved ecclesiastical community in the West. So it's just one of many things that is fragmenting the Church of Jesus Christ and virtually every branch of the church out there. Let me assure you, you are not a bride of Jesus Christ. Don't ever think of yourself as a bride of Jesus Christ. It'll get you into trouble. And as I mentioned earlier, it's only one and only a minor image of Jesus. Well, one, I mean, of the bride. One, one of the images of the church is a warrior. Yes, a warrior, quite different from the bride. Uh, the church is called Jacob, is called a vineyard, is called a temple, is called a tree. There are so many images that are out there, and if we focus only on one, it'll either give an imbalanced view or could potentially lead to heresy. Well, let's move on. Verse 8 says, And it was granted to her to be dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice again, the clothing of the bride is different than the bride. It can be distinguished from the bride, even not though you can't separate it from the bride. Also notice that God gives the corporate bride the fine linen, and yet it also includes the actions of the saints. They as individuals beautify the church with their righteous deeds. No one individual is the church. The church is an institution distinguished from saints, yet made up of saints. By the way, this factors into the whole debate you're getting on Facebook of what, you know, whether there should be church membership or not. I won't get into it this morning, but you can think through some of that logically. Another implication of that clause is that their sanctification is only possible as God gives it to them. Galatians 3 indicates that even sanctification is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that must be received by faith. Does it involve our actions? Yes. This passage says so. Galatians says so. But it comes from the Spirit. We can only work out what God has worked into us. Um, and yet it is imperative that the bride of Jesus Christ engage in righteous deeds. Uh, God brought redemption, according to Paul's epistle to Titus, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a special people who are zealous for good works. Verse 9 says, and he says to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Not everybody can come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And even those who are outwardly able to come are not always caught up to the heavenly feast. This verse not only pronounces blessing, but it distinguishes those who belong to the feast and those who do not belong to the feast. Not everyone is invited by God. And even the Lord's table, which is a symbol, is somewhat exclusionary. The passage I read earlier from Matthew 22 goes on to describe people who were eating at that marriage banquet, but who do not belong, who were not invited, who were not wearing the white garments that Jesus provided. In other words, they're coming to the Lord's table, but they are not truly saved. They're not truly a part of the banquet above. What does Matthew 22 say about those who have been partaking of the earthly counterpart to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but who are not regenerate? Let me read it for you. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is why the scripture calls us elders to examine candidates for coming to the Lord's table to see if they meet the qualifications, one of which is that they've come through the door, the proper door, they've not climbed over the wall, and the other of which is they have white garments on, which is what? The white garments is the righteous deeds of the saints. There has to be some evidence of transformation. Now, even though we examine people, we can be fooled just like the Apostle Peter was fooled by the profession of faith that was given by uh, Simon uh, Magus. But uh, the point is, people can come to this Lord's table and be fakes. And Jesus said, if they don't repent, they will be cast into outer darkness. But in this passage, there is blessing pronounced upon the elect who are truly invited to the real banquet. There's a tremendous blessing that comes upon us when we feast at the Lord's table in faith. It feeds our souls, it strengthens us, it seals the covenant to us, it promises to us everything we need for life and godliness, it links us to Jesus, it brings a flow of his blessings. But Hebrews is quite clear, we must approach the table in faith. Verse 9 continues, and he says to me, these are the true words of God. What God promises in the marriage supper of the Lamb, He always fulfills. He is good for His Word. This is why the Lord's table is such a precious meal. It's more than nourishment. It is the pledge. It is the promise of a God who cannot lie that He will fulfill His covenant. Verse 10 says, And I fell at His feet to worship Him, but He says to me, Don't. I am your fellow servant, and among your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Beale says in his commentary, this passage presents an example of how easy it is to fall into idolatry. Even the apostle John fell into that sin. What did he do? I mean, the Greek word just says that he prostrated himself to to revere this angel, and the angel says, don't. This is idolatry. This is blasphemy. Interestingly, people do this with the pope every day. They fall before him. Here is an angel who is far greater, far more powerful than any pope has ever been. He refuses exactly the same kind of revering or prostrating that happens to the pope. And actually, Matthew Henry in his commentary says, it is absolute idolatry when people come to the Lord's table and they curtsy. Women curtsy and men bow before it. They say, well, if the presence of the Lord is here, we've got to bow before it. But that is to fail to distinguish between the vehicle that God uses and God himself. And he says, no, it is idolatry to reverence them, to reverence Mary, to reverence any of the saints. Okay? Barnes points out that if even an apostle can unwittingly fall into idolatry, it is a warning that any one of us can fall into the same sin. Even sincere people are sometimes sidelined from devotion to God into devotion for something else. The angel says, I am your fellow slave. Now this too is a slug against idolatry of men. Just because the apostle John was a vehicle uh, that was used by God to bring scripture does not mean in and of himself he is anything. 
He is not. Like this angel, he was merely a fellow slave. And it is high time that Christians took upon themselves this moniker of slave and delighted in being God's slaves. And people say, yeah, but we've been elevated to the status of sons and daughters. That is true. But read Galatians 4 verse 1. Galatians 4 verse 1 says that a, an underage slave, you know, short of heaven, is what? No, an underage son is no different than a slave. This is why the apostles, even though they were apostles, not only sons and daughters, but apostles, they consistently called themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. And I think it would be something that would generate humility within our own hearts if we say, yes, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God he also receives me as a son or as a daughter, but I am a slave. I want to do his will. I'm sold out to him. Another doctrine that we see here is the doctrine of prophecy. The angel speaks of himself and John as being, quote, among your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there are three things that I want to bring out from this I think really need to be reiterated again. The first is that all prophecy, whether angelic or human, should lead us to worship God, not the instruments through which it comes. Second, all prophecy is Jesus himself speaking or testifying through those prophets. Their will, their opinions had nothing to do with the prophecy. What the prophets say is Jesus speaking. This phrase, the testimony of Jesus, should not be interpreted, as charismatics always do, contrary to the immediate pro uh, context and the context of the whole book. As one commentator said, now, if the testimony of Jesus in verse 10 means the same thing as it did in verse 9, then it means not, that only when Jesus' human servants proclaim the same message that Jesus taught and attested do they truly prophesy. The negative of this statement is equally true. Those who do not proclaim the same message do not have the true spirit of prophecy. Now, when I preached on chapter 1, verses um, 2 and 9, we saw that the phrase, the testimony of Jesus, is a reference to the very words of Jesus being spoken. Thus, it's not the prophet's authority, it's Christ's authority speaking through them. Okay? Uh, and this, again, should cause people to reverence the words that come out of Christ rather than the messenger. Now, of course, the apostle John, we've already seen, he said prophecy ceased uh, in AD 70. And so the only testimony of Jesus we have is in the Bible. Third, prophecy came by the Spirit, which I take to mean the Holy Spirit. Mounts' commentary says of that phrase, John's readers would certainly understand his reference to the spirit of prophecy in terms of the Holy Spirit as the one who inspired all prophecy. Or as Christopher Davis says, the phrase spirit of prophecy refers to the Holy Spirit of God who enables prophets such as John to speak. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in prophecy. It speaks of what's going on here as the words of God, the testimony of Jesus, and words which the, are prophetic, uh, um, yeah, the prophetic spirit gave. So all three members of the Trinity are involved, and that's why the command to worship God, to focus on Him, comes right in the middle of the doctrine of prophecy. Now, we've already seen in previous sermons that the whole book of Revelation is also the testimony of Jesus. Yet, Revelation 19.10 says that all prophecy of all prophets is the testimony of Jesus. So, if A equals B, B equals A. I mean, simple logic tells you that all prophecy is equal to Scripture. 
It is God's very word to man through Christ. Wayne Grudem says he doesn't know what that verse means. Well, that's convenient. I think he should just admit that it completely contradicts his whole thesis. But I think it's quite clear. This verse makes prophecy clearly parallel with the rest of Scripture. And, of course, the rest of Scripture says exactly the same thing. You look in the book of Acts, look up in a concordance the word prophet and prophecy and prophesy, and you will see that it refers to Old Testament infallible prophets and prophesies, uh, prophecies and prophesying in the same verse with New Testament prophets and prophesying. There is no difference between the two of them. And thus, just as 2 Chronicles 9.29 speaks of Scripture as a book of prophecy, Revelation 22.7 speaks of the words of the prophecy of this book. Prophecy equals Scripture. Wayne Grudem says the New Testament Scriptures are not prophecy, but since Revelation 22.7, 22.10, and 22.18 all speak of the words of the prophecy of this book. He says, well, Revelation is an exception to that principle. I say, no, it's not an exception. It's, it's the paradigm. Romans chapter 16, verse 26 speaks of the New Testament as the prophetic scriptures which reveal a mystery that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. Okay? In contrast, Grudem says, to my knowledge, nowhere in the New Testament is there a record of a prophet who was not an apostle but who spoke with absolute divine authority attaching to his words. Now, even with all of those qualifiers, he still is wrong. Peter insisted that, quote, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. Prophecy never came by the will of man. There are no exceptions in Peter's inspired definition of prophecy. According to Peter, there are definitely not two kinds of prophecy. Prophecy was always inspired without exception. And that's why in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told his hearers, watch out, there are going to be false prophets that are not prophets that I have sent, and here's how you can tell the difference between a false prophet and a good prophet. He said, true prophets will always bring good fruit. They'll, the fruit is the prophecy. So it's always going to be 100% inerrant without any error. And by the way, he goes on to say that just as Old Testament prophets were put to death if they falsely prophesied, New Testament prophets are deserving of death and be cast out as well. And Agabus is no exception. We saw that he was inspired and perfectly accurate in his prophecy. I'm not going to cover that material again. I think it would take too long. But I'll just make one more observation that I think should be patently obvious. If only apostles could produce New Testament Scripture, as Grudem claims, how on earth did Mark, Luke, Acts, James, Jude, and Hebrews come into existence when they clearly were not apostles? The answer for me is they were prophets, and prophecy is always inspired. Okay, Romans 16 says that all New Testament Scriptures were written by prophets. They were prophetic Scriptures. Grudem disagrees. He insists that each of those authors wrote something under apostolic oversight and once the apostles approved of the writing, it became inspired. That is not how inspiration works. According to 2 Peter 1.21, inspiration works on the author of the book, not on some supposed overseer of the book. It was Luke, James, Mark, and Jude who were moved by the Holy Spirit so that nothing of their prophecy was moved by their own will. Well, if the prophets were merely passive vehicles of God's revelation in the New Testament in exactly the same way that they were in the Old Testament, 
It's no wonder that their words were designed to lead us to worship God, to reverence God rather than the messenger. It's no wonder that the bride focuses on the lamb, that this angel focuses on the lamb. He tells John to focus on the lamb. All of the guests of the wedding feast, they focus upon the lamb. It's no wonder that verse 9 speaks of the prophetic words as being inerrant. And he says to me, these are the true words of God. We can trust the words of New Testament prophets just as we can trust Jesus. The bride prepares herself for Jesus and completely entrusts herself to him and submits to him. We are called to do the same. We, we do so with the faith and with the joy that these multitudes did. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult portions that make us dig and struggle. We thank you for the easy portions in which we can uh, just bask and uh, relish. But uh, I pray that you would, uh, uh, day by day, step by step, help us to mature in our understanding of your word and uh, to uh, respond to your word with wor worship, with joy, with adoration, with obedience. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.